Hi, it's Joe from News here and man, what a busy week it's been. Confusion over the lockdown support bubbles and who you can and can't have around your house. Those plans to get all primary school pupils back in class by the end of the month don't seem to be a thing anymore. There's also been warnings that the 14-day post-holiday quarantine will damage tourism. But zoos are reopening. Hallelujah, something to do with the kids to stop them whinging that they're bored. But of course, the other big thing getting back up and running on Monday is non-essential shopping. I think we've got to be ready for a very different experience though. Hand sanitizer stations, queues, one-way systems. I reckon buying new clothes is going to get a bit weird. But we've been finding out how some of Oxfordshire's businesses are preparing. First to the covered markets, where it's all supermarket style arrows and stewards at the gates. Emma from News spoke to Annie from John Gowing Jewellers. It was very emotional to have to actually close. Um, We have weathered bad times through the years. We've had at least three recessions before, but we've been able to trade through them. But we've never actually had to shutter the shop, which happened in this case. So that in itself was quite upsetting. All our workshops, etc., associated with the business have been closed too. So we were completely stymied. However, we haven't been idle. Um, We've tried to use the time to um, good effect. Uh, We made some informative videos um, about the workings of watches, which can be found on our Facebook page. Um, So that was something that kept us occupied for a bit. And we've also been given um, a great deal of thought as to how we can use the new normal, as it were, um, to implement some new ways of working. So uh, what we've been putting in place is a system of video consultation. So somebody, say, if they wanted to um, talk to us about a repair, but they weren't comfortable coming into the shop, then we can schedule a video consultation, chat to them about that, and then perhaps we can use our new postal service for repairs. So that might be one way around that. We're also setting up a system to book private appointments, That can be done on our Facebook page or via email um, or by phone when we're open again. Um, And also, of course, drop-in appointments. How did you feel then when Boris Johnson announced that non-essential shops could reopen their doors? We were absolutely delighted, really delighted and excited. Um, We're also, it's kind of mixed feelings, really. We're we're relieved to be open again. Um, I, I think... Probably most people in our position would be. And we're excited to get going with the new initiatives we've got. I think that will be a good thing to do. Also, on the other hand, we are worried about um, what's going to happen. You know, how soon are the customers going to return? What's life going to be like? So, yeah, it's a bit mixed, really, to be honest. You did mention about some measures in place for your reopening. Are you ready for Monday? Do you feel good about it? Yeah, we feel absolutely very positive for Monday. Um, As in terms of preparation in the actual shop, um, our shop is quite small, so we'll be limiting customers to, um, you know, one person in at a time. Um, That will be very easy to monitor from our point of view. Um, We've got an absolute ton of PPE. We've got lots and lots of um, protection for both our staff and for our customers. Um, We've set up uh, one of the sneeze guard things on our counters all the shop uh, staff will be wearing face shields and we'll have plenty of hand sanitizer available for customers and the staff all the time the other thing that we have uh, we've 
purchased a couple of um, UV light uh, sanitizing boxes uh, to deal with how we clean our stock. Um, we're obviously lucky in the fact that our stock is small items. So uh, we'll be able to use these boxes to sanitize the um, items of stock, whether somebody wants to try them on or once they've been tried on, they can be put back in the window. And also we'll use them for when people bring in items for repair. So we'll just pop them in this box, put them in through the sanitizing cycle, and then they'll be safe for our staff to work on. And then they'll do the reverse process where it's given back to the customer. So, yeah, we're really confident about how things will work. It's always been a big thing with us, our customer service and expertise, and we're still here for everybody. And if we weren't there, I, I like to feel that people would miss our service and the services that we offer. So please support us, and we'll still be here for you in the years to come. Sticking in the covered markets, I caught up with Irvin, who runs the Oxford Soap Company. Well, for us, it was very scary to start with. Uh, no one knew how bad it was going to be. Um, so, yeah, we just had to deal with it. Somehow we managed to keep our head, abo- uh, head above the water. Um, yeah, we've had lots of support locally. So business hasn't stopped for us, uh, but it's not flourishing. Um, we managed to do that by keeping the website up to date, keeping our uh, online presence there. We also did, um, to keep that going, to keep our business going, we also did t- twice a week, we did personal delivery. So I'd go around in my car and deliver all the products. It has been amazing to see how much support there is locally for us and for the covered market itself. It sounds like it. So do you have regular customers then that w- will keep buying from you time and time again? Yes, absolutely. We had um, all our uh, local regulars, they, they kept ordering, but they didn't just order for themselves. They actually found... Uh, an opportunity to support local business by ordering items as gifts for other people. We also had um, one gentleman who actually, for the last three months, every time he got, he got his wages, he actually bought a big bulk to go for the NHS. Oh, wonderful. Uh, what is it that you maybe miss the most, I suppose, about actually trading from the covered market on, on a normal day? We really miss the hustle and bustle of the cover market. Uh, we miss people's faces. We miss talking to people. Uh, it's, it's different doing it online and doing it through the phone, but uh, actually being there in person and the personal touch is um, we definitely miss that for sure. I bet. And I know it is going to be a bit different, obviously, when everything reopens because it's not quite the same amount of people allowed in. I'm guessing you're going to have to limit how many in the shop at one time. What sort of changes have you made in your business? Well, reopening has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, the cover market itself, it's a list of buildings, quite a small, uh, we have small units. But uh, I'm so excited to go back. Uh, I had to rearrange the whole shop for the last 10 days to make more space, more walking space for people uh, so people can come in freely, walk around uh, and, you know, make sure that they feel they feel safe when they come in. So that's our duty. Of all the stores in the covered market that needed to get ready for this, I suppose being a soap shop probably put you a little bit ahead of everyone else, didn't it, in terms of uh, hygiene? <laughs> yeah, so be, being a soap shop, we we always had a, a hand wash station there prior to this COVID happening. So that, um, that was quite easy for us there. But, also, uh, but what has been challenging is um, rearranging the shop. So we have one-way system and making space for people to come in 
all of the businesses that work around you, they're all quite small, local, independent companies, aren't they? Yeah. Are you expecting all of them to be back? Or have you heard of any that have really struggled in this time and maybe aren't able to open? Most of the businesses are very small businesses and they're family run. So and each, each business has a family behind it, which is very differently affected. Business wise, um, lots of uh, lots of us are, want to go back uh, as soon as possible because simply we don't have uh, a business if we're not there. Um, there is, I suspect there is going to be quite a, a few businesses which are going to be open a bit later on simply for personal reasons uh, or simply they, they're finding it a lot more challenging because they're tiny units. Um, so the social distancing will uh, will bring quite a difficult times for them, yeah. Yeah, I bet. But what would your message be to anyone maybe listening to this and thinking they want to come and visit? Maybe they're a little bit nervous, but they want to support you. What would you say? Well, first of all, thank you for support. And uh, you are welcome to come in. We are trying really hard and we're doing our best uh, as shop owners ourselves. But the council also is doing a massive chunk of work around the cover market, making it safe, making it a one-way system. Uh, checking the numbers through so you should you will feel very safe place to come in so yeah we're looking forward to having everyone there restaurants and cafes we hope will be opening next month but much of Bista Village is also getting back up and running on Monday Victoria Prentice is the MP there and had a sneak peek at some of the changes they've put in Little marquees on all the entrances and exits to the village where you walk past a computer screen effectively is what it looks like and it takes your temperature automatically and they showed me what would happen to customers whose temperatures were elevated and where they'd go and what would happen to check whether or not they um, might be unwell. They also showed me um, what would happen to clothes that had been tried on. They'd then go into quarantine, the clothes, for 24 hours. Staff will be wearing masks. Not all customers will. They can, obviously, if they want to. There were wide ranges of uh, hand-washing facilities and hand sanitizers. About 7,000 people have been trained. And what was really impressive, actually, was that they've taken the learning from the other villages around the world which have already reopened in China and in other European countries and they've used that to inform what they're doing in Bicester. Did they tell you how many shoppers there might be allowed to come in? It, they, they did say that they had um, a series of caps that they were going to put on, the numbers they were going to put on but of course we won't at least initially have many international visitors so they're not really anticipating a problem with that at the moment. I think it is important that if things continue to go well this week that we do reopen retail next week. It's been a long time without a retail offer and, and the high street has undoubtedly suffered as a result of this pandemic. I think with some children back in school now and many of us back in our normal workplaces, it is time gently to start reopening. And I really, really hope that pubs will be and other hospitality outlets will be next in line. Over in West Oxfordshire, things are looking a bit different too. In Whitney, for example, there's going to be a new 20 mile per hour speed limit and the pavements are being widened. District Councillor Toby Morris told me they want to help shoppers and market traders recover as quickly as possible. I know that a lot of the um, street traders and some of them 
have been um, working throughout the last week making internal changes to their shops to try and make them sort of COVID safe. But we're obviously going to have less people in store at a time, but um, the council are going to be providing sticker sets and notices so that um, businesses can inform people how many people are allowed in the shop and the social distancing markers. But obviously the shops are going to not be as busy because we're going to be limiting the amount of people that can go into them. And I suppose with all this, there has to be a bit of a balance, doesn't there, with making sure customers feel safe. But I suppose making sure those traders can get back to some normality as quickly as possible because of all the business they have lost in recent months. Absolutely. The high street, we always say, was was changing. Um, But Whitney and the rest of West Oxfordshire actually was quite quite lucky that we had thriving and still bustling town centres. And they've now been closed for a couple of months. And we want to support the traders as much as possible to, to bring those businesses back and, and, and build a thriving town centre once again. Have you had many sort of shops locally that you've heard of or businesses that have maybe had to cease trading um, permanently during the lockdown or, or have you heard generally that they're sort of managing to get by? I've heard rumours obviously of some businesses and some shops that may not reopen but that's not been confirmed officially Uh, I think we won't actually know the full impact and the full scale until those traders start to reopen um, and and progress with the recovery phase. I think it's when we're in that recovery phase that we'll be able to assess and judge how many of the businesses haven't reopened and and don't intend to. But I think at this moment in time, it's difficult to to know the scale of, of, of that impact, really. And would you say it's important now for all of us individually to kind of do our bit as well to help boost the local economy by, you know, when we can safely going to the shops and spending a bit of money? I think at Christmas, before anyone had heard of COVID, I made a campaign that I think everybody should should shop locally. They should go and support their independent traders and support their town centres um, because that's how we keep them. And I think that's uh, ever more the case today that if we want to keep our market towns we want to keep our town centres alive. Something a bit different now as despite reports the coronavirus pandemic's turned more of us to booze there's a new study involving Oxford Brooks which has found over a quarter of people in the UK have actually reduced their drinking but still 20% admitted drinking a lot more often. Dr Emma Davies is a senior lecturer in psychology at Brooks and told me more about what they found. About a third of people saying they've reduced um, their sort of binge drinking, so what we would um, determine to be more than five drinks on one occasion. And that's quite significant because that's associated with increased risks of harm, sort of short-term harm, if you are drinking a lot on a single occasion. But also that adds up and can lead to longer-term harm in the future. So that's really positive to note. Um, we also ask people what were those sort of reasons that they, they were drinking a bit less. And it might sound a bit obvious, but some of them were... Um, for example, they had a lot less contact with people, which I think um, we'd all say is, is unsurprising, but, and, and less access to settings where we usually drink. So obviously we're not going to the pub at the moment. Um, but also um, 
nearly a third of people said they just didn't feel like drinking during this time. So something didn't feel quite right with them to be kind of sitting and, and carrying on as normal. Um, and again, another um, chunk of people were using the time to get a bit healthier. So perhaps they're all joining Joe Wicks in the morning or, or things like that. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's very interesting to note that the people who had um, reduced their drinking were experiencing some really positive benefits. So for example, um, those people who'd reduced drinking reported um, better mental and physical health compared to the people who had increased their drinking during that time. And there were also some changes in terms of their finances, as you'd expect, um, but also the quality of relationships too. Now, the thing that the people who had increased drinking did report slightly better was that they were getting more pleasure out of their drinking, which again, I think we'd say is probably unsurprising. The other thing that we asked people is whether they would like to drink less in the next 30 days after the survey and we are going to be following them up to find out if this is the case. Quite a high proportion of people said that they were around 40% in the global sample and that's really interesting. That might show a reflection on people's part that maybe they have um, consumed a bit more than they'd like to during this time. I think it's fascinating though to see how so many different people are dealing with lockdown when it comes to drinking because I was talking to some colleagues of mine earlier and explaining that I believe that I had been drinking less and I think that's because quite often you know on a nice day after work I'd maybe wander around to the pub and and have a drink which I'm not doing and um, I I don't drink as much at home and then obviously there's others that say I feel like I'm going home and and having a drink every day as soon as I get home and you know maybe linked to stress levels or whatever else but we're all coping completely differently aren't we? We are all coping completely differently. And it, I, I mean, this word has been overused, but it is an unprecedented situation. And we're all kind of finding our way in this situation to, to cope with things the best. And I think there will be um, later on when we release our main findings, because the survey is still open until the 20th of June. Um, I think when we release the main findings, we'll, we'll be able to look in a bit more detail and see whether there are differences in terms of people's age, um, in terms of whether they've, uh, like, like yourselves, um, stayed in work or they've been working from home like me or they've, or they've not been working um, and we're also going to be looking into whether there are any differences in terms of people's pre-existing mental health conditions on the impacts of their um, any changes in substance use so uh, whether or not they had a, an existing diagnosis of a condition uh, we'll be able to compare people who have and haven't and see if there are any um, differences in the changes that they made to their substance use but also if there are any differences to the impact of those changes and I think that's the really important thing what are the impacts of those changes if the impacts are small and they're slight um, then okay that's that's probably not something to worry about but if they're having if there are big impacts for example on people's physical mental health and their relationships then those are the people that we obviously want to to reach out to and to help and I suppose it'll be interesting to see if after lockdown drinking habits do go back to normal yeah. and I think like you say I think there might be people that sort of struggle to get back to their normal levels and do need that extra help potentially Absolutely. I think there will be people who really have struggled generally with um, things like anxiety or depression who might be feeling extra anxious 
due to the lifting of the lockdown actually and, and things starting to open. So it may be that the people who are experiencing those feelings are less likely to kind of rush back out and uh, and carry on as normal. But there also may be people who just can't wait to get back out and get get into those pub beer gardens. You know, it's been such lovely weather, hasn't it? That's such a, a British pastime, isn't it? What we need to do is kind of keep an eye out and um, and and have a look at those different patterns and see, you know, make sure that we don't think that everything's just going to go back to normal for everybody at the same time and just keep an eye on what that's doing to our alcohol consumption in particular. I mean, it is quite telling that um, lots of people are contacting me saying, oh, are we going to have a, 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 a kind of shortage of wine or we're going to have this? And, you know, that's our kind of our sort of British way of coping, perhaps. And, and actually, maybe this is an opportunity to, to sort of unpack that a bit and maybe think about it as a, a sort of not really a great coping strategy for everybody. Um, and for those people who find it um, not a good strategy, then, then those are the people that we need to be helping. We also heard this week that zoos and safari parks are being allowed to reopen, but indoor attractions will have to stay shut for now. So that includes the UK's only crocodile zoo based in Bryce Norton. Sean Foggart's the director of Crocodiles of the World and told Emma it is heartbreaking because they're ready. Unfortunately for us, I think the, the future still remains unknown. Um, now, what's really heartbreaking in, in this is uh, that we've got plans in place um, that, where we can safely reopen, online bookings, all prepared, reduce uh, visitor numbers, one-way systems, you know, all the relevant signage we, we need. Um, and yet, it's, we're still being separated from some of these larger zoos. Um, and I mean, some of these larger zoos, they're just their gift shop areas uh, uh, are the size of, of one of our uh, indoor areas. So uh, they're still being allowed to open. Um, and obviously, you've got a lot of non-essential shops that are now opening and uh, from Monday. And, you know, we're still being told we're going to need to be closed. Um, yeah, I really feel that we can welcome visitors back in a in a in a equally, if not more, safe way than um, than what some of these shops can. Um, so it's it's a little bit it's a little bit sad, really. What would you say to the government? Uh, allow us to open. I would welcome them to come. I can show any uh, local MPs, um, the Prime Minister himself. Um, I can. I can show them exactly what we've put in place, uh, walk them through the entire site, and, um, and certainly it will convince them that, um, that we are definitely COVID safe to welcome visitors back immediately. Would you be ready to reopen on Monday if you were included in that? Absolutely, yeah, we would be ready Monday. What social distancing measures have you put in place? I know you mentioned then about the one-way systems as well. Is there anything else? Yeah, so we've we've got the the one way system and the reduced visitor numbers. That's that's key because um, uh, we everyone obviously needs to social distance. So we need to control the amount of um, uh, visitors that we can have on site at any one time. So um, all admission tickets will have to be booked pre booked online, and they'll have to um, uh, pre book a specific time slot that they're where they wish to come and visit. So we know exactly who's going to be coming and um, and what time they'll be here as well. Crocodiles of the World has launched a crowdfunder to raise money to feed and look after the animals while they're closed. It costs around £10,000 a month to run. Over at the Cotswold Wildlife Park, though, it is good news. It's opening on Wednesday, social distancing and all. 
Boss Reggie Hayworth described the government's announcement as unexpected but very welcome news. He also gave Emma his reaction to Chester Zoo launching a crowdfunding campaign to save it. We have over the years built up uh, reserves for a rainy day and this is what they're for. That's not to say that it's not a really painful process to actually watch this money flow out the door. But ever since foot and mouth back in 2001, uh, we always were prepared or felt we needed to prepare for the possibility of something like this happening. And it is incredibly painful and much worse than I thought it would be. But uh, as long as we return to some sort of normality next year, I think we should be able to survive without uh, going out to the public screaming for help when, frankly, there are so many other causes uh, and more deserving causes if we can afford to look after ourselves. Um, I'm quite prepared to believe that Chester really were looking over the precipice, uh, that they hadn't prepared for a rainy day. Maybe they should have. Uh, And if they were that desperate, then good luck to them. But um, we've always run this company on on a, in a way that I hope is mindful of its responsibilities to its 150 employees. And that means making sure that we are prepared to take a big hit when things go wrong um, without having to um, without having to call in the fire brigade or whatever. So you can go to the Cotswold Wildlife Park from the 17th and you can even take your own picnic. Also this week, we brought you the news that five charities in Oxfordshire who work in education have written a joint letter to all of our MPs asking them to support the creation of a catch-up premium. Now, now this would give schools extra money to help the most disadvantaged pupils who've been badly affected by the pandemic and the school closures, of course. Sean Rennick is the CEO at Quest Learning in Didcot, which started the campaign. We're all charities who work in education with children who are um, struggling, who are falling behind and who need some extra support. And we wanted to do something collectively uh, to bring the issue to the attention of our local MPs. We know that it's nationally um, getting a lot of attention today, particularly with calls for uh, a national recovery plan for education coming from teaching unions and from um, the Education Select Committee. Uh, And we wanted to join our voices together to really try and uh, push this agenda forward for, for local children in Oxfordshire. Would you like to see all primary school pupils back to school before the end of summer holidays? Well, I think that's a really difficult question because obviously we we know that children are missing out um, on, on learning by not being in school, but we also know that there are really significant logistical challenges with getting people back to school in a way that's safe. What we really want to do is to to call for a clear plan on how the impact of this um, this closure of schools to to some or, or most children is going to be tackled when when it is safe for children to go back to school. And I understand that you think disadvantaged children will be mostly affected by this. Yeah, so we know that that disadvantaged children, um, children who are eligible for pupil premium, are already behind their peers. Um, Anyway, and we we also know that that this um, period where the schools are closed and children are relying on home learning as as their main source of education is going to have an impact 
more of an impact on, on those children who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds where they're less likely to have uh, reliable access to devices to do their home learning on. They're less likely to have um, good internet connections um, and they may have it may not have the, the home learning support that, that children in better off families do as well. So yeah, we, we know that they're going to be the hardest hit and have the most ground to make up when they get back to school. And finally, probably unsurprisingly, coronavirus has been named Children's Word of the Year. Oxford University Press looked at stories written by thousands of young people to come up with the most popular phrases. Here is Helen Freeman. She's one of the directors. It's a really interesting process, actually, because often people think Children's Word of the Year um, comes from doing a literal sort of count-up of the frequency that a word's used. But it's actually not that, because if we did do that, Children's Word of the Year every year would probably be something like mum or dad um, and, and lots of frequently used words. So, so we have to do something a bit more in-depth. And what we do is we do qualitative and quantitative analysis and how we approach that is we're looking out for a brand new word and brand new topic. Uh, we do look at frequency um, and how often those words and those related, uh, the vocabulary related to a topic come up, but it isn't only frequency. Um, and then we also look at um, the spread of the use of that word. So what I mean by that is that we look at um, how it appears within the children's stories. Um, does it appear equally or in a fairly balanced way between boys and girls writing? And does it, does it appear in the writing of the younger age group um, of the stories, but also in the older category? Um, and then the final thing, which is really interesting, is we look for how uh, whether there's a sort of a high level of engagement with a topic. So uh, we're looking at associated or linked vocabulary. So in the case of, of coronavirus, we would look and see if there were words like virus or pandemic or lockdown. Or, and it's, it's, it's an indicator for us that there's um, really quite deep engagement with a topic rather than a word just happening to be thrown into a story. Um, and that's exciting for us because our work's around uh, how children develop their vocabulary, acquire new vocabulary and expand their learning. Where do you think they're getting a lot of these words from? Is it picking up from people around them in school, social media? What do you think? I think probably a mixture of all those things, actually. And, and children, um, they definitely have their eyes and ears open uh, to the world around them. And sometimes that's picking up on conversations. There might be adults around them who are talking about uh, news and, and global events. Um, but we also know children are quite switched on to social media. So, you know, they're, they're maybe picking up on things on YouTube. Um, hopefully they're also reading things, whether online or, or in books. Um, and they, they just, they're like little sponges. They just pick up the world around them. They're inspired. Absolutely. And the thing is, then they weren't all kind of horrible, gloomy stories either, were they? Some of them took some really kind of unique <coughs> angles on their stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every year we're looking out um, for sort of emotions written within the stories. So we do a particular um, analytical activity called sentiment analysis. Um, and we do things like we, we take vocabulary, positive and upbeat, happy vocabulary, and we also take sort of more negative, 
uh, vocabulary and or happy and sad vocabulary is the simplest way to put it and then we analyze that and look at on balance whether the general mood of the stories uh, you know what the mood's like so there were a lot the balance was definitely skewed towards upbeat happy fun stories but specifically around coronavirus um there were lots of really fun ideas as children explored that particular theme. So we had um, magical unicorns that were whispering the secret ingredients of a cure um, and Smurfs, you know, in one story, the Smurfs show up with um, a little blue potion that somebody can drink to help build build up antibodies in the blood. Children's imagination, huh? If only magical unicorns and Smurfs were the answer to all our problems right now. The winning stories were also read out on the radio by celebrities like David Williams and Joanna Lumley. Right, that's it for you lot in this episode, but we will have tons more virusy updates for you in next week's podcast. Ta-ra for now. Mm-hmm.